My name is Sam, for uh, the, uh, all of you who don't know, but uh, welcome, glad to be going through the book of Judges. If you have your Bible, you need to open up to the book of Judges, chapter 5. We're going to go through verse by verse. Bibles are in the back if you need one. Uh, just real quick plug for compassion. Uh, we've been supporting uh, Mugabe Rashik in Uganda um, for, I don't know, a couple years now. Uh, and it's been a good experience, especially for our kids because um, they get to correspond with him and, and kind of give him little notes and, and encouragement, and he get to bless them at Christmas and things like that. So uh, it's a great experience, and honestly, it's just a small way that we have to re, uh, kind of trying to open our eyes to the fact that we can never become too inward-looking. Yes, be inward in that. It's important to be about family. It's important to grow uh, and to serve one another and to to love one another, but there's a whole world out there that needs Jesus, and there's a whole world out there that needs to know uh, the love of Jesus, and because we have experienced the love of Jesus. So that's a small piece, there are many others, and we're going to be ramping that up quite a bit, um, as really even over the next few months, so I uh, hope you will participate in that, because it's an experience that, quite frankly, may be a ministry to him, uh, or to whoever you support, but it's really a ministry to yourself, um, by the grace of God, so... We're in Judges chapter 5, and I'm going to read every verse in Judges chapter 5. It's really a song, and Judges chapter 4 and 5 go together. So if you're not here for chapter 4, I will give a quick summary of it uh, as soon as we begin uh, after reading. But uh, there's a kind of a complete story over these two chapters that's important. So this is a song uh, written and sung by uh, two people called Deborah and Barak. And so I'll read... And uh, it basically tells the story of chapter 4, which includes a, a large battle and then a somewhat of a um, kind of assassination of the uh, enemy. So you'll get b- bits and pieces of that, and I'll try to explain it as we go. But this will describe the gathering for the battle, the battle itself, and after the battle. So Judges chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Yael, the highways were abandoned, and travelers kept, by, kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way. To the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of His villagers in Israel. And then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, break out in song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. 
from Ephraim, their root, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Maker, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff, the princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley, they rushed at his heels. And among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepholds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, well, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. But Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death, and Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. From heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent Kishon swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud the beat, beat the horse's hooves with the galloping and galloping of his steeds. Curse, Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly, because they did not come to help to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, a tent-dwelling woman most blessed. He asked, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera. She crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. Between her feet he sank. He fell. And where he sank, there he fell, dead. And out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man? Spoil of dyed materials for Sisera? Spoil of dyed materials embroidered? Two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil? So may all your enemies perish, O Lord, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for 40 years. And all God's people said, this is God's word, and a lot of it. All right, so Judges chapter 5, the song of Deborah. Now, for those who were not here last week or didn't hear the sermon, uh, as I said, Judges 5 is kind of a commentary on 4, so um, I'm going to give you a 60-second summary of what happened in chapter 4 so you understand kind of the context. Um, Basically, after the death of Ehud, who was a couple judges prior, he's the left-handed judge who took out the really healthy, robust, fat man, right? He killed him, but eventually he dies after 80-some years of relative peace, and Israel sins again, which has been their cycle. God, in response, sells them into the hand of a Canaanite king, so he gives them over to a king named Jabin, And Jabin's general is named Sisera. And Sisera leads a very big army. He's got 900 chariots and thousands of men. And he proceeds throughout the nation of Israel to rape, pillage, and oppress Israel for 20 years in the most cruel ways you can imagine. He's a bad, mean, powerful dude. Israel eventually cries 
And God responds. And his response is to raise up a woman named Deborah, the first and only woman judge that we have in this book. And she rises to ultimately, through a series of pretty crazy events, deliver Israel. And she calls upon a, name, a man named Barak uh, and tells him that God has told him to gather an army amongst all the tribes and gather them at a mountain called Tabor. And God would draw out Sisera, and then you would battle, and God would defeat Sisera and his entire army, to which Barak responds in hearing that, well, uh, I'll go only if you come with me. And if you don't come, I'm not going, Deborah. Pretty fearful, pretty cowardly, somewhat unfaithful. So Deborah agrees to go with him, says, I'll go with you, but just know that this path you've now chosen will not lead to your glory. Actually, Sisera will be defeated by a woman, which would be not only shameful for Sisera, but also shameful for any leader of the army that was attacking them, in this case, Barak. So the battle ensues. He gathers the people. The battle ensues, and as promised, God draws out Sisera's army, and as promised, he defeats Sisera's army through... Um, uh, partly a weather storm that uh, he drops down on top of the chariots, making it very difficult for them to uh, be very functional. And Sisera is the only one out of all the men that are killed. Sisera is the only one who escapes, and he runs up north to the tent of a family of which he is supposedly allies with. And there, the wife is home, named Jael, and instead of giving him you know, safety whatnot, she ultimately ends up murdering him as he sleeps with a tent peg going through his temple into the ground. Now, that's the story of Judges 4. In Judges 5, we have Deborah, the prophetess, and then Barak, who, when you first read Judges 4, you get this sense that Barak is actually some kind of general, some kind of military leader, some kind of guy that is the one guy that's going to gather people. When you read where he's from... The city that he says he's from is actually a Levitical city. Most likely then he's a Levite. Most likely he's a priest. So she calls up a priest, and they now are singing a duet, the song of Deborah and Barak, about what happened. The Hebrew uh, actually says that Deborah is the one, means the tone of it, the feminine nature of it, says that you know basically Deborah is the one who's writing the song and the one who sings the song. So Barak is pretty much uh, just playing an instrument to accompany her. And because he's a Levite, there were a, certainly a portion of Levites who were dedicated to the temple who were actually just musicians. So that's most likely, again, what he is. And so with Deborah on vocals and Barak on guitar, they travel Israel and sing this song about God's victory to everywhere. Now, I probably just moved that for Randy. Sorry, buddy. Um, now, with Deborah um, and her song, we all know, even apart from this, the power of song. Or you probably have experienced the power of song. Music is an incredibly powerful tool. It is a gift from God, used for great things and, and terrible things at times. Um, but this song is spoken or sung from the mouth of a prophetess, which means it's the, really the words of God. It's God's song. So it's an incredibly powerful song. There are several songs like this. Moses had a song, uh, and now Deborah has a song. Now, music in our culture is incredibly contagious. Um, 
if you've ever listened to any level, which I know you have, it is uh, an important part of our culture. It is everywhere, too. I mean, we're just saturated with music. When I was first service, I was reminded that when I grew up, my dad was really into Volkswagen Bugs. And uh, I clearly remember that the kind of radio they used to put in Volkswagen, it's like 1970s Bugs, right? It's like AM only. That's all I had. It had buttons that like, you push and it snapped to like, the next. I didn't even know how to set the buttons. It was, it was amazing me, though, because at the time we had FM radio. I'm like, this is it. We got AM radio, that's all. Well, yeah, because FM radio came out and that was like, advanced. But then now we have AM and FM, XM, iPods, you know, uh, all kinds of music that can be downloaded from everyone onto phones. Every, we're surrounded by music. And music shapes us. If we all kind of shared, which I don't have a smartphone, but if you all shared your smartphones, your iPods, you would see that each of us probably have a very diverse amount. We don't all listen to the same music, but we listen to music that's important to us, that's meaningful to us, that moves us. Now, some of the songs that are popular today or become popular are quite meaningful, and then there are those that are just plain foolish and stupid. Um, And some of the most memorable ones both meaningful and stupid, become just saturated in our minds. And you got people, kids, adults, singing them, um, just you know, repeating them, and then you get to a place where they're starting to almost believe what they're singing, and don't even know what they're singing. They're, they're singing stuff that's sometimes dark, sometimes good, um, but they are, in many ways, being shaped. Their views are being shaped by some of the songs that they sing. And I believe that that's because songs quite frankly, are very similar to sermons. And that songs communicate truth about something, then they influence what we think about certain things. You've seen that in culture that, you know, generationally, songs have defined cultures and they've affected change very often. And while we, at times, maybe consider songs just as pure entertainment, historically, songs, especially back in ancient times, were used actually to seal and protect and preserve culture. Like that's how they maintained their identity uh, of who they are. Martin Luther once said that he didn't care so much who wrote theologies as long as he could write the hymns. Because he knew that hymns and music are the things that often define culture and make it memorable. So some of the songs you, we sing, you'd be like, I never heard that before, or, or that's a really old song. But if you actually read the songs, you'll see that a lot of it is proclaiming some very deep truths about what we believe and who God is and what He has done. But songs have agendas, I believe that, um, in that the people singing them have agendas. And they tend to, or their intention, is to sometimes reform how we feel, how we think, even how we act. That's kind of the nature of art. It's not just expressing. I think it has more power than that. But this song is not just written to inform you about what happened. This song, if you, if you take it as God's word, is proclaiming truth about God, and it is going to demand from you a response. And there's only two responses. Worship or rebellion. That's it. God's going to say, here I am, here's the song, and we are going to be moved to worship, or your heart's going to be hardened by it. That's the reactions that God's words has on people. Now, this song is broken into three stanzas. One starts in about verse 2, one starts in verse 12, and one starts in verse 24. And they'd actually sing this song uh, as part of their culture. And the first stanza I titled, Scary God and Scarier People. Okay? Scary God and Scarier People. Now, 
The song begins by talking about God. And in the first couple verses, it begins to recall a time when God originally led His people out of Egypt. Talking about the Exodus. And He led His people out of Egypt to the bottom of a mountain called Sinai. And that's where Moses got the Ten Commandments initially. And Moses, before God came down the mountain, he told Moses, I'm going to come down the mountain, watch out. And when he comes down the mountain, you read Exodus 20, he comes down in a gigantic storm. And it's a storm of storms. And you read this in the song, we also read Exodus 20, there is a huge dark cloud, there is lightning, there is earthquakes, and there is rain, and it's serious. And God says, don't even come near the mountain, don't even touch the mountain or you're going to die. Okay? His presence is powerful and major, so they start this song talking about lightning and rain and all these things. That can. You go, well, why? Well, we can't forget that the God of the Canaanites is Baal, and Baal is the God of the storm. And so Israel has gone after the storm God, and God wants to say, let me show you how dumb that is. Okay? Because over the last battle and everything, Mr. Baal's storm God has been pretty quiet as the one true God who really controls all weather and every little bit of rain and lightning has dumped it down as a declaration of His power, of His glory, of, you want to talk about storm gods? I'm the one that invented the storm. I'm the one that created the storm. I'm the one that is present within the storm. Don't be going after some silly little storm God that really isn't a God at all. And so he starts very boldly by declaring who he is. Yahweh, we see in this song, is is positioned or declared and praised as a God who marches, a God who shakes the earth, a God who dwells with his people in rain and clouds and lightning and power. He's declaring his power. And yet, his people have gone after these, quote, new storm gods of the Canaanites. And I think the thing to remember is that we can never forget that their sin, Israel's faithlessness, is what has brought about their oppression. Sisera's a bad guy. The Canaanites are, are a very corrupt and perverted people, and they have done some cruel, terrible things. But the reason why Israel is in this situation is their sin, their faithfulness. They have pursued and created their own oppression. Now, this darkness that they've gone after, this slavery that's been created, has created a world that's very dark. And it describes it as it describes Shamgar and Jael, the time period. And we talked about this when I preached on it. The highways are no longer safe. So their sin is not only resulted in the oppression, the sin has, has kind of saturated the world with danger. It's no longer safe. There's no sense of fruitful life anywhere. It says the villagers have ceased in Israel. We all know villages are the places of life. And so all of life, all fruitfulness has stopped. And then it even says there are 40,000 warriors without weapons. So there's no weapons. There's, no, there's, there's warriors, quote, warriors there, but no one is, is fighting. It is a very dark place. They are oppressed. They are powerless. And as we talked about last week, the oppression is led by a guy named Sisera. And Sisera, they said some interesting things to say about Sisera. 
I mean, I thought he was a bad dude and stuff. And then I started reading a little bit of Jewish history about what kind of guy Sisera was. And Sisera is like this legendary villain. Okay, so combine like uh, Darth Vader with Hannibal Lecter and some Conan, evil Conan the Barbarian like wrapped in. That's Sisera. Strong, evil, corrupt, pervert, but powerful. And Sisera, he was said in Jewish history to, first of all, have conquered every nation, country, and people he ever fought against. So at this point, and we introduced to him, he's like, you know, invincible and, and has never been defeated. Some wrote that this guy, Sisera, when he bathed in the Kishon River, he would catch enough fish in his beard to feed his entire army. Okay? Now, first of all, he's pretty studly because he has a beard. But if you've got a beard that's catching enough fish to feed an army, I think they want to like, tell you how studly, powerful, strong this guy is, right? Furthermore, it said, and this is probably most importantly, Sister was said to have such a powerful voice, right, when he spoke. Because the word of God, and the word is really important throughout Scripture and even here. He has such a powerful voice that when he yelled, the most solid wall would crumble and the wildest animal would fall dead. Okay? That's awesome, right? He's a slime ball. He's like, Bruh! I mean, that's just rad, okay? Rad evil. Now, suddenly, as we're looking at, like, you know, Barack, you're such a coward. Suddenly, Barack wetting his pants about the idea of going against Sisera isn't so unreasonable, right? Come on up, musician priest. Why don't you take on Sisera? And he's like, bring. I don't know about that. I don't know if that's a good idea. So, here's the incredible thing about it, ladies, on Mother's Day, which should be probably just called Women's Day, okay? Here's the thing about it. Everything changes when a woman rises up. There's a reason why the feminist, and, and the feminist, you know, not good, but resulted from men not doing their job. That's really what's happened. But the reality is they grab on the Deborah because she is studly. She is strong. She is bold. She is courageous. And when Deborah steps up, she says she rose as a mom for Israel. And God is so, I didn't like look, forward and go, on Mother's Day, I'm going to preach on Deborah. It's going to be like so amazing. Like this, God has worked it out that way. She arose as a mom for Israel. And you go, well, why, why is a, there's no female judge anywhere else, right? You don't see a lot, you see females playing roles, but you don't see females leading like you see Deborah here. You go, why here? Why in this place? Why at this time? And I'll tell you, plain and simple, there are no men. There are males, but there are no men. There are no godly husbands standing up. There are no fathers standing up. They are all silent. Which, quite frankly, sounds a lot like our culture. Where you have men who are there, but not. Who have abdicated their responsibility to lead, abdicated their responsibility to protect, abdicated their responsibility to provide and nurse for the families. And what happens when that big void is created? A woman steps up. 
And God prays that they raise up women to do that, and God be shamed or shame those men that do not. There's no shame for the woman that stands up, but there's definitely shame for the men that have not. And that's what happens. You see that all the time. Marriages, families, where the husband and the father has completely abdicated responsibility, but the family is saved because of the strength of that mom and that woman. She fills in the gap where she shouldn't have had to. We see that because of the failure of men, Deborah has to play the role of father and mother. She has to do both. And that's not to her shame at all, but it definitely speaks to the darkness of the culture at that time, of what's going on. And she is quite the woman. Again, the same Jewish history says that she was incredibly strong and the only one, not the only woman, the only one in Israel who could withstand Sisera's powerful voice. The only one that when Sisera spoke did not cause her to stir in her place. A strong woman. You don't mess with mom. Right? You don't mess with mom, especially when you're messing with her kids. Like a mother bird or maybe a mother bear. When cubs are threatened, mama bear is not intimidated by anything or anyone. And the image of a mother generates all kinds of of meaningful connotations, but I think the one that might be most important is that without moms, none of us are here. Right? Moms are the life givers. And I think that speaks to the fact that Israel, Israel, it's not that Israel just needs like a new way of doing things. They don't just need to be inspired to act differently. They're being called to take on an entirely new life. And the new life is going to come through responding to her voice and not listening to Sisera's. Responding to her voice, which, quite frankly, are God's words. That's all she speaks. It's God's words. Life comes from the word of God. Period. But often we see that with Brock here, the strength or weakness of many a man's faith often comes from and through the voice of a woman. The voice of a woman is incredibly powerful and it can either help or hurt a man's faith at times and many others. We saw that with our first parents, Adam and Eve. A woman possesses the power to help a man and to to really lead a man toward God or away from him. And the voice of Deborah here not only strengthens a, a cowardly an unfaithful Barak, it serves to inspire much of Israel to fight. And the thing about it that's incredible is that neither Barak or the army is a collection of warriors. As I said, Barak is, is from a Levitical pre, or city, meaning he's a, a priest. And from the song, we learn that he's just a priest with a guitar, not a sword. And the change in this man's life, the transformation in this man's life, 
occurred with the call of God. Through Deborah, God calls Barak into service. And what happens? We have a musician priest who's a little bit apprehensive to go against Sisera the Great, but he does it. And he goes. And I think for me, I've struggled a little bit seeing Barak in the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews chapter 11 is the big chapter of faith, names all these people by faith, they did this, by faith they did this, and they're like, and Barak. You're like, what? That guy was like the most faithless guy in the story. Why is he getting credit? Why, why do they have this guy? I mean, why not Deborah? List Deborah in there, man. She's the one that's speaking against Sisera. You should think about that. I did. I thought about it for a while. Okay, what? Brock seems like such a dork, right? But here's what I, I think it I think we see. That though he may not have demonstrated whatever level of faith we think that he should have, because it's easy to judge him. Well, clearly he wasn't faithful, right? Whatever level of faith that he did exercise, it was enough for God to commend it. It was enough for God to say, that's faithful. And to be put in the museum, hall, whatever of faith. This musician priest who basically, in response to the word of God, became a general of an army who had a strong woman by his side encouraging him in the word of God. That's what you see. And it's awesome. And it's not because of Deborah. It's not because Barack was like, I'm just going to be tough. Give me my guitar and start whacking. It was the word of God changing somebody. The word of God coming into a man who was faithless and cowardly and being faithful and courageous. The word of God did that. And not only does the voice of Deborah, the word of God, inspire Barak, she inspires the common people to join this daunting but exciting mission of God. It's not like all the warriors suddenly come out of the woodwork. It's all the villagers. If you read through the song, it's constantly these villagers coming through. It's a peasant army. And as you see this peasant army start to respond to these people, what you see in stanza two is that not everyone responds. Even amongst God's children, not everyone responds and gets on mission. So I like to call the second stanza, it starts about verse 12 and goes to 22, the warriors and the whips. There's a bunch of warriors and a bunch of whips. And you can imagine that as this song was sung over the years, which they would do, they would sing these songs to remember and to proclaim. The same song about God's victory would forever bring to mind, in some, a sense of of pride, not a a sinful pride, but just a pride, a joy of what they did together, and others, a sense of shame as they remembered. And this army is an assortment of noblemen, it's an assortment of leaders, commoners, you even have artists and musicians adding to it, and it brings to mind the image of, I don't know if you've seen Braveheart, but William Wallace, when he's gathering his army, like going out to all the villages, everyone's like showing up with their sticks, you know? It's this peasant army, this, this group of nobodies, but they all have something small to contribute. 
And he goes through the list of the different tribes that decide to join in the battle and those that don't. You have Ephraim, who says it contributes loyal warriors. And if you look in the Hebrew, there's a sense that at one point they weren't a faithful group. So you have guys that weren't faithful, maybe felt a little bit of shame that they hadn't, and then suddenly they're coming through, even with a bad resume of faithfulness before then. You got Benjamin. Now, Benjamin's a small little tribe, right? Benjamin shows up with their four guys. I like they're like, great, Benjamin's here. Woohoo, right? Small. Benjamin's got nothing to offer except a bunch of left-handed warriors that served you know, pretty well previously. You've got Manasseh, who is maker. It's part of Manasseh. They contribute commanders, people to lead. You've got some guys contributing uh, administrative staff. It says lieutenant staff. And you've got Issachar taking the front lines with Deborah. You know, the first guys, the bullet stoppers, if you will, the scouts. But then Deborah sings, and I think this is where we look at that and we're like, yeah, all right. Let's go, Benjamin. That's right. You read the second half where she sings. Okay, so she puts into their culture, into their history, into let's sing about this and remember all of us that did not participate. Those that did not come, those that did not join, those that did not follow God or sacrifice for one reason or another. And it wasn't for lack of opportunity. It wasn't for lacking of understanding of like, well, what do you want us to do? Gosh, I didn't know what mountain it was. I would have been there. It's not any of that. It was for lack of faith. And in summary, here's, I think you have three reasons, at least from this text, for people that people give for why they won't follow God on mission. And I don't know what that means for you. God calls us all differently. He gives us and equips us all differently, but He certainly calls all of us to mission. Calls all of us to go. Calls all of us to the battlefield to contribute whatever we have to do whatever we can with what He's given us. But here are the excuses these guys use. First, they're indecisive. Not really sure what to do. The second group was preoccupied. They had a lot to do. And the third was too scared or risk-averse. I know that's just a little dangerous. He mentions the Reubenites, and he says it more than once, I believe, the phrase is, there are great searchings of heart. He says it twice, right? They had great searchings of heart. Great searching, you know what great searchings of heart is? Thinking and doing nothing. So they thought about it, they even talked about it, and talked and talked and talked and talked, and that's all they did. Even if they thought about coming to Mount Tabor where they were gathering, they decided, you know what, it's just probably not good timing. But I'll tell you, the mission of God is very inconvenient. It is very inconvenient. Then you have the tribes of Gilead, which would have included Gad, also Dan and Asher, whom they mention. And the bottom line for these guys, they talk about like, well, you know, they stayed. They stayed with their ships. They stayed with their flocks. These guys, the bottom line was they were just too busy with the day-to-day things of life to you know, be bothered with the mission of God. Busyness. Man, I got a lot. My family's got this. My job's got this. I have these. Maybe you need to get less busy. But if I get less busy and work less hours, then maybe you need to get less busy. 
And then the third, which is the worst, and I say the worst not because I think so, but because God does, is the group he like, he just describes one, then he curses these guys. Maraz. Maraz refused to come to the aid of the army. And this seemingly after the battle started. And no one, I've looked and looked, and no, scholars can't figure out exactly where, where this place was, where these people were located. But the assumption is, or seemingly the implication, is that they're closer than anyone else is during the battle, so much so that they can see people watching, they can watch and they can see them fighting. And they choose not to get involved. They choose to play it safe. Well, that looks dangerous. People are like dying. Yeah, your brothers and sisters... So they tried to preserve their life and, well, I'm not going to risk it. I'm not going to get involved. I might end up losing blank. And God ends up taking life from them. And they end up losing everything. And in all of this, in gathering this army, here's what I think we see. We see that God is the one who fights, okay? God is the one who drew out the army. God is the one who defeats. But God invites and expects His people to actively be with Him on mission. Not to just watch, not to just spectate, not to just think about it. It's a great book that came out called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. Firmly agree with that. But I also firmly believe it doesn't mean you do nothing. We are not saved from or by our works. We are proved saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done. And nothing I will do will change that. We are not saved from or by our works, but we are saved for good works that God does through us. We are saved for that. So we're not called to sit and ponder about whether we should be on mission. That's called unfaithful. We're not supposed to sit and fill our lives with all kinds of busyness to the extent where we can't follow God when He clearly says, Go! That's unfaithful. And we don't sit and watch while people or children or neighbors or brothers and sisters in the body are suffering, are hurting. We help them. To not is to be unfaithful. Those who are God's people respond to God's call and His voice and they orient their lives completely differently. And that should challenge you. I read that and go, you know what? My life is still, to this day, too comfortable. It's too comfortable. And I've used excuses like, you know what, I'm going to think about going on mission. I'm going to think about doing this. And five years later, I'm still thinking. Even if the mission is just going next door to ask your neighbor over for dinner. Or I fill my life with busyness. And then I watch, to my shame, and this is what I feel, not what you should, as I see people sacrificing and giving and, and, and doing incredible things and going, yeah, that's awesome. And me watching in comfort. 
even if we don't uh, play the role, if you will, if we don't lead that mission, if we don't go to Haiti, if we don't, you know, lead whatever ministry you think that someone should be leading, everyone plays a role. And that's what you see in this. Everyone contributes something to it. And so what do you have Deborah as this mom singing? I mean, she's teaching her children still as a song. Let me teach you the song, children. And it's that God's kids not only get along and love one another like a family, but they're actually sent and empowered by God to continue fighting, to fight God's enemies, to bring healing to the world, to set captives free, to proclaim the glories of Christ in the corners of a dark world, wherever He sent you. But all too often, the, the reality is we'll only act if it's going to personally benefit us, right? I mean, if we're honest for a second. We want to know the measurable benefit. What's this going to contribute to me, or what's this not going to take away from me? But look at Barak for a second, right? Barak proceeds knowing, being told, that you are not going to personally benefit from this. Yes, it's because of his unfaithfulness. He said, well, his glory's going to go to... But he's told that glory's going to go to a woman. You are going to fight a lot. You may even die, who knows, but the winner is going to be someone other than you. Barak proceeds to do exactly what God said, knowing that. And he ends up playing a part in setting the stage for Israel to be delivered. Because the battle fights, Sisera leaves, and then someone else delivers up here because of that. I think there's a lesson to be learned there, and that's probably why he's commended in Hebrews. In essence, you see Barak accepting that he's a role player. He's a role player. He's secondary. As which we, we all are to God. right? We're all supporting actors to the one. But we all want to be the center. Ultimately, he's not going to be recognized. He'll not be commended. He will not be glorified for the work that he does. And instead, his faithfulness results in someone else being recognized, someone else being commended, someone else being blessed, someone else being glorified. He's more concerned with the interest of others than himself. Sounds a lot like the attitude of Jesus Christ. Where that drives him. Where he suffers that others might experience glory. Where he's shamed, so others might experience freedom from their shame. Where he's broken, so that others can be restored. The attitude of Christ. And so for a second, you begin to see why Barak maybe is commended. Because it points us to Jesus. Final stanza. Last 20, verse 24 to the end. I call this one Superwoman and Psycho Mom. So that's what this is really about, right? You got the good mother, Deborah, who is joyfully singing. It's hard to like, oh, he was killed. And like, it's kind of weird to imagine that, but that's what she's singing. And she's singing about the aftermath following the battle when Sisera flees north to the tent. And Jael, for one reason or another, exposes herself to great risk, to great vulnerability, to great harm, and she kills him. And the anxious thoughts of Sisera's psycho bomb are in verse 28. And I spoke about this last week where she wonders aloud about her son. And you begin to understand 
the kind of risk that maybe Jael was really exposing herself to because this guy was a slimeball, professional rapist, womanizing, cruel, beastly man. He was evil as you can get. And the mom sits there and wonders, like, gosh, where is he? I mean, there's been enough time for every man to have, you know, one or two wombs. And I wonder if he picks up some embroidered clothes from my wardrobe. Like, wow. But this time, the abuser is killed. And the once powerful voice of Sisera is silenced by, the Hebrew says that actually, it may not be temple, actually it may be mouth a peg that's driven into his mouth to the back of his head, silencing his voice. Makes a lot of sense for me. And then Deborah celebrates this deed, calling Jael the most blessed of all women. And there's no indication that she acted in faith. My guess is that God used her despising of this man for what he was to save his people. But take this pagan, this unbeliever who does this amazing thing to deliver Israel whether she knows that she did that or not and contrast that with the people of God's people keep people of morose it's pretty convicting and challenging for those who call themselves disciples of Christ see when the faithfulness of pagans surpasses yours there's a problem Think about that. The non-believer is called most blessed. And God's own children who decided not to get involved are cursed. And we see that in our culture today where there are people more excited about a false gospel going out, feeding the poor, meeting the needs of those who are innocent and broken, proclaiming their songs more faithfully than Christians who have the one true song. And when the faithfulness of unbelievers outmeasures the faithfulness of those who are truly saved by Christ, there's a problem. But, praise God that He is bigger than mine and your unfaithfulness. He's bigger than it. And that fact should not excuse us. It should inspire us that we can fall forward as we pursue God. We can fail as we work to honor Because there really is no failure. Nothing can stop God's mission. And He invites us to be on it with Him as a blessing, as a joy. And so in the end, this is the tale of two moms, or perhaps the tale of two voices. And I like that he uses the idea of mom, because um, you don't even know if Deborah has kids. But she acts as a mom for millions um, of children. And God actually, uh, if you read through the Psalms, which are other songs, is compared to uh, a mother often. Specifically, some of the imagery that's used is um, how a, a mother bird gathers her young, cares for her young, protects and feeds her young. 
So this isn't about mothering, if you will. It's about caring for those who need. And Deborah is a godly woman and a mother, and Mrs. Sisera, whatever her name is, she was a psycho and a sinful one. Because there's only two paths to walk. They both use their voices to powerfully shape their children, to powerfully affect their cultures. One toward giving glory to God, and one uses their voice to rob glory from God. One uses her voice to push her children, to push those in her care, to push those she loves, to find hope, where? In the Word of God. And to give their lives for His mission. That's what she's proclaiming. And the other pushes her children to find strength in themselves. Strength in their own voice, in their own work, and to preserve their life at all costs, even if it means abusing anyone in your path. Those are the two options. And one, quite frankly, leads to life in Christ, and one leads to death apart from Him. And considering this is a song to be sung in Israel, and knowing, honestly, the brutality of what happened, We may find the final words of Deborah's song a bit disturbing or just odd. She says in the last verse that she's almost as if she's reveling and celebrating the death of God's enemies. Woohoo! Ding dong, the witch is dead. Okay? She writes, So may all your enemies perish, O Lord! Exclamation point. So may all your enemies perish, God! Like that? Holy smokes! That's brutal. May all your enemies perish. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. The song is intended, as all the Bible, to push us towards one person. And you know where this is going, because it should go there every single time we preach. It is a song about Jesus Christ. Jesus, who was sent by a loving Father, To save us from ourselves. To save us from our sin. And we we hear like crushing. I mean, it's like Jesus was like, you know, loving. No, Jesus did not come to subdue our enemies or to bargain with them. He came and he lived and he died to crush our enemy. Completely crush our enemy. See, by sinning, which is pretty much everyone who's ever born of a mom, which is everyone, by sinning, everyone who has ever lived has chosen to align themselves with Sisera, his psycho mom, and Satan in the rebellion against God. And our sin... Our sin, your sin, my sin, our sin has led to incredible levels of cruel oppression. We have worshipped false gods that we thought we could control and we become enslaved to them and some for many years. Some people get enslaved to lust for many years, to money, to the need for for pride of, of career and success to various substances, to get enslaved for many years. 
and we for a second believe that the problem is Sisera. The problem is outside of us. Well, if I didn't just have that big bad enemy coming down on me, it wouldn't be a problem. The enemy came because of the problem in you. The sin in you, the heart in you, perverts everything that God made good. And it makes it bad because you begin to worship it. But God knew how to fix it. And the same word that came from Deborah's mouth, that word came in the flesh to free us. Jesus, the word, the only one who stayed faithful to God. The only one who never changed teams. The only one who never ever gave into temptation and remained sinless. Jesus is the only one who can and will defeat Satan, free us from those false gods, and bring us to true freedom and rest. Jesus is the only one. Not even Deborah. Jesus rescued us from the kingdom that we wrongly fled from by dying in our place for our sins and therefore defeating the enemy. And it reminds you what Colossians says as the last verse I read. Colossians 2 says, When you were dead, when you were enslaved, when you were oppressed in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ and He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code and its regulations that was against us that told you basically how you weren't going to make it, how holy you had to be. That code that stood opposed to us, He took it away, He nailed it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and the Siseras and their moms and all those authorities, and He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now that is something to sing about. We are free. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. And it's something to sing about outside the shower. Right? We get these songs and we keep them in the shower. And you sound good. I'm sure you do. Right? But spiritually speaking, it never gets out of that. You know the gospel. Jesus loves me. This I know. And then you get out of the shower and you close your mouth. That's not what God has for us. This song wasn't just for Deborah and Barak's little duet in their house. It was to be proclaimed publicly. And even now, God is calling His children as He did back then. And He is gathering a peasant army. So yes, you're qualified. Whatever little bit you have to contribute, that we might come together as a family and love one another and, and be with one another and encourage one another as we go out to fight God's enemies together. As we go out to bring healing to the broken. As we go out to set captives free. How? By singing the song of God to those who have not heard it. And that might be in your own marriage, in your own family, in your neighborhood, in the city, or across the world. I don't know. But I do know this. You and I are called to sing. And so we're going to sing now. We're going to end the service by coming and experiencing the song of Christ dying for us. And, and not just freeing us from all this terrible stuff, but freeing us to something. And then we're going to give of our voices 
And we're going to sing not about ourselves, not about how awesome we are, but we are singing about how awesome God is and what He has done to bring healing to our hearts. Reminding ourselves that this is not all there is and that we have something to do here while we still breathe. To not just sit and ponder, but to go in the joy of being on mission with God. I pray that you'll sing believing that. And I pray you'll actually sing the words and read the words that you're singing so we understand what you're proclaiming. Let's pray together as a family. Father, I thank you for all that you have done to make us alive. For all that you have done to take our broken hearts, our stone-cold hearts, and to make them new. To hear your word and not be hardened by it, but, but be inspired by it. Like Barak was inspired by the words of Deborah. And I pray that you will inspire us, Father. That you help us to see beyond our own little world. And to begin to see our mission while we're here is ultimately to sing to others.